Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 15. Last week, I went into great detail concerning the Rosetta Stone, the key to our modern understanding of the ancient Egyptian language. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning to cover the religion of the ancient Egyptians. So let's get started. I'm starting this episode with the Egyptian version of the afterlife, mostly because it dovetails with the previously covered mummification process, but also because this is the part of their religion most known in our modern popular culture. Ancient Egyptians believed that humans possessed a force called a ka, their version of a soul, which left the body at death. While alive, the Ka received its energy from food and drink. So, to live after death, the Ka had to be fed. Therefore, food and drink were left in the tombs. Each person also had what was known as a Ba, which was a collection of characteristics unique to the individual. Unlike the Ka, the Ba remained attached to the body after death. Egyptian funeral rituals were designed to release the Ba from the body so that it could freely move and rejoin it with the Ka, so that the two forces could live on together. However, it was also important that the body of the deceased be preserved. This was because the Egyptians believed that the Ba returned to its body each night to receive new life before emerging in the morning. But first, they would have to get to the afterlife. As I covered several episodes ago, in Egypt, when a person died, and if they were of means, then they were frequently mummified. This was thought to preserve the body for whatever came after life. They were also buried with instructions for how to reach the sort of paradise they believed in, where they would live in perpetuity. Now, their beliefs were not static and evolved over time, And in the later period of their history, the soul had to endure an assortment of supernatural dangers before undergoing a final judgment known as the weighing of the heart. In their mythology, one of the first things to occur after death was to measure what they had done while alive. The weights of their deeds would be compared to what was known as the feather of Mott. If the person had committed too much evil, then the person's heart would be heavier than the feather, and their soul would be destroyed. No need to worry about the afterlife. But if their deeds were generally good, the Ka and the Ba were united into what was known as a Ak, and they passed to the next step, where they could potentially navigate the underworld. There were a few theories about where the Ak ended up. Often the dead were said to dwell in the realm of Osiris, an opulent land in the underworld. The so-called solar vision of the afterlife, in which the deceased soul traveled with Ra, embodied as the sun on his daily journey across the sky, was primarily reserved for royalty. During the Middle and New Kingdoms, the belief that the Ak could travel in the world of the living and could occasionally affect events there, became increasingly widespread. Finally, the dead were also buried with sculptures called Shabi, and these Shabi were essentially servants that would serve the purpose of doing the work of the dead in the afterlife. 
Give me a lot of those. The religion practiced by the ancient Egyptians was a multi-layered system of polytheistic beliefs coupled with systematic rituals. Their religion played an essential role in their society. Similar to other ancient polytheistic religions, their deities were thought to inhabit the same world as humans, but these deities also controlled nature. The people would offer prayers and provide offerings to the gods in order to gain their favor and also to maintain the order of the cosmos. The traits of the gods were ultimately connected to the Egyptians' understanding of the properties of their world. The pharaoh, especially in the early years of the kingdom, was seen as a living deity, possessing the power of a god and acting as an intermediary between the people and the higher gods. Individuals interacted individually with the gods, seeking help through prayer or compelling them to act through magic. These individual practices were related to more corporate practices of formal rituals. As Egyptian history progressed, the reigning pharaoh lost power while religious authority grew. More on these themes in a bit. The religion apparently began in the period of prehistory and evolved as Egyptian society developed. Over the 3,000 or so years of ancient Egypt, the roles of individual gods grew, then declined, with some becoming more dominant while others faded into the background. The sun god Ra, Isis, the mother, and Amen, the creator of all, always remained somewhat central. But there was also a time, during the reign of Pharaoh Akhenaten, so during the 18th dynasty, in the 14th century BC, that the religion became temporarily monotheistic, worshipping Aten, who was associated with the sun. According to Rabbinic Judaism, this was during the life of Moses. Outside of Judaism, this very short period is often seen as the first instance of monotheism, although the details of Atenist theology are still not well understood. And, to be clear, like so many other things concerning ancient history, not everyone agrees with this theory. Other researchers don't think of the time as being monotheistic, but instead is what is called monolatry, which simply means placing one god above the pantheon of gods. After Akhenaten died, his successors returned to the traditional polytheistic practices and Akhenaten came to be regarded as a heretic. The Egyptians believed that the things that occurred in nature were divine forces, so essentially brought about by their gods. This meant that weather, astrological events, animal behavior, essentially anything that needed explanation was related to a deity. Complex events, such as the sun and rare eclipses, would be related to multiple deities, and they attempted to use their religion to control these things and to use them to their own ends. Like anything involving multiple leaders, members, entities, whatever, their polytheistic religion was very complex, which was not helped by the belief that some deities existed in many different forms and others had multiple legendary roles. Their assorted pantheons stretched from gods with crucial roles in the universe 
to minor deities and demons with very specific functions and limited geographic scope. They also included gods adopted from foreign civilizations and sometimes deceased pharaohs. Very rarely, deceased non-pharaoh humans would be deified. This was the case with Imhotep, the 27th century BC chancellor and priest. Oh, and he is believed by some to have designed the first pyramid, as well as columns to support a building. As for their specific geographic constraints, many of their gods were linked to particular regions in Egypt, where their specific cults were significant. But the linkage tended to evolve over time, and also moved from region to region as the populace migrated. Their god, Manthu, was originally associated with the city of Thebes, in what is today central Egypt, on the bank of the Nile, of course. To Thebans, he was the most important deity, at least until the Middle Kingdom, when he was replaced in that role by Amon, who may have arisen elsewhere. Overall, the popularity and importance of individual gods fluctuated in a similar fashion. Within the pantheon, the Egyptian gods had complex relationships with each other. This is thought to be the result of the belief that they represented the forces of nature, and the natural relationship between these forces was, of course, complex. The ancient Egyptians often assembled their gods together to reflect these natural relationships. But this wasn't the only way deities were grouped together. Other combinations linked independent deities based on the figurative meanings within the Egyptian mythology. For example, pairs of deities usually represented the duality of opposite phenomenon. One of the more common combinations was a family unit consisting of a father, mother, and child, who were worshipped together. Some groups had wide-ranging importance. One such group, the Ennead, assembled nine deities into a system that involved the mythological areas of creation, kingship, and the afterlife. I touched on this briefly way back in Chapter 2, Episode 3 of the podcast, when covering the creation stories from around the globe. More on their creation stories in a minute. Then there was something a bit different. Apparently, two gods could merge into one, forming a composite god, their version of a deified merger, or maybe an acquisition. In this, the two gods would take on the roles and responsibilities of what were formerly independent gods. Yeah, it's complicated. One such example was when Amun, the god of hidden power, was linked with Ra, the god of the sun. The resulting god, Amun-Ra, thus united the power that lay behind all things with the greatest and most visible force in nature. So, the light, the sun, and the shadow. As time progresses, the relative position of an individual god to the other gods waxed and waned. Three such examples were the royal patron Horus, the sun god Ra, and the mother god Isis. During the New Kingdom, a moon held the highest position, the theology of the period described in particular detail Amun's presence in and rule over all things, so that he, more than any other deity, embodied the all-encompassing power of the divine. The Egyptian idea of the universe centered on Ma'at, a fixed eternal order of the universe, 
both in the heavens and in human society. Ma'at had existed from the beginning of the world, and without it, everything would lose its structure. In ancient Egypt, Ma'at was threatened by force of disorder, so all society was required to maintain it. For people, this meant that all members of society should cooperate and coexist. More universally, it meant that all forces of nature, including the gods, should continue to function in balance. The Egyptians sought to maintain Ma'at in the universe by sustaining the gods through offerings and by performing rituals which staved off disorder and perpetuated the cycles of nature. What is perhaps the most significant part of the Egyptian view of the cosmos was the concept of time, which was interlaced with the maintenance of Ma'at. Throughout the passage of time, a cyclical pattern recurred in which Ma'at was renewed by predictable periodic events which echoed the original creation. Among these events were the annual flood of the Nile, the seasons of the year, the succession of one king to another, and the most frequent, the daily dawn-to-dusk journey of the sun god Ra. As was true with all ancient societies, and even a few modern people, the Egyptians viewed their world as a flat expanse of land, which was associated by their god Geb. The sky was overseen by the goddess Nut. These two, Nut and Geb, were separated by Shu, the god of air. The underworld was a parallel land, even with its own sky, and beyond this was chaos, known as Nu. There was also the Duat, a shadowy place connected with death and rebirth. It's unknown if this was associated with the underworld or instead with the sky. After dusk, Ra, the sun god, would pass through Duet to be reborn at dawn. During this journey, Ra met with Osiris, who acted as the instrument of regeneration so that Ra's life was renewed. He also fought each night with Apep, a serpentine god representing chaos. The defeat of Apep and the meeting with Osiris ensured the rising of the sun the next morning, a rebirth and victory of order over chaos. The Egyptians believed that the universe was occupied by three forms of beings. The first, of course, were the gods. Next were the spirits of deceased humans. These beings existed in the divine realm and possessed many of the gods' abilities. And third were the currently living humans. The most important among these were the Pharaoh, who bridged the human and divine realms. Now, there is no true consensus if the Pharaoh was considered a deity. Most likely, the authority of the king was considered to be a divine force, which makes their belief of the Pharaoh a bit complicated. The ancient Egyptians considered the Pharaoh to be human, and therefore possessing typical human weaknesses but also a deity due to the power he wielded. And as such, he could serve as intermediary between Egypt's people and the gods. He was vital to maintaining justice and harmony in human society, and by sustaining the gods with temples and offerings. He also oversaw all state religious activity. At least this was until the late New Kingdom, when his religious importance declined drastically. The king was specifically associated with many specific deities, early in their history, with Horus, who was seen as the son of Ra. Ra was thought to control nature, and Pharaoh ruled society. 
At this time, when he died, the deceased Pharaoh was believed to ascend to the sky and dwell among the stars. By the new kingdom, the Pharaoh was associated with the moon, the supreme force in the cosmos. Usually, after his death, the king became fully deified. It was then that he was directly identified with Ra and was also associated with Osiris, god of death and rebirth. Many temples were dedicated to the worship of deceased pharaohs as gods. Over the course of the Old Kingdom, however, he came to be more closely associated with the daily rebirth of the sun god Ra and the underworld ruler Osiris, as these deities grew in importance. Egyptian myths were figurative stories intended to illustrate and explain the gods' actions and roles in nature. The details of the events in these stories could change to convey different symbolic perspectives on the mysterious divine events described. As a result, many myths existed in different and frequently conflicting versions. Surprisingly, especially considering their well-developed writing, the religious narratives were rarely written in full, and more often text only contained episodes from or allusions to a larger myth. Most of our knowledge of the Egyptian mythology is derived from hymns that detail the roles of specific deities, but also from ritual and magical texts which described actions related to mythic events, and finally from funerary texts which mention the roles of many deities in the afterlife. There are also outside sources that provide allusions in secular texts. Examples abound from the Greeks and the Romans. One such is Plutarch, a 2nd century AD Greek historian who recorded some of the late Egyptian myths. As for their creation story, you would be correct in assuming that their version of the creation story was rather detailed. In this version, the world emerged as a dry space in the primordial ocean of chaos. Because the sun is essential to life on earth, the first rising of Ra marked the moment of the emergence from chaos. Different versions of the myth describe the process of creation in various ways. A transformation of the primordial god Atum into the elements that form the world. Also, the creative speech of the intellectual god Ptah. And finally, as an act of the hidden power of a moon. In all versions, the act of creation represented the initial establishment of the Mahat, and it was the first instance of all the future cycles of time, seasons, days, whatever cycle could be measured. But, to the Egyptians, the creation story was not the most important story. That honor was reserved for Osiris and Isis. In this story, the divine ruler Osiris was murdered by his jealous brother Set, a god often associated with chaos. It was Osiris's sister, who was also his wife, named Isis, who resurrected Osiris so that he could conceive an heir, who would be known as Horus. After the birth of his son, Osiris entered the underworld and became the ruler of the dead. In adulthood, Horus fought and defeated Set to become king himself. Set's association with Chaos and the identification of Osiris and Horus as the rightful rulers provided an example for the pharaohs to secede each other. 
Essentially, their succession was associated with the maintenance of order in both the world and the universe. Also, Osiris's death and rebirth were related to the Egyptian agricultural cycle, the annual flooding of the Nile, the planting and growing of crops, and the harvest. All of this was further associated with the resurrection of human souls after death. They recorded their religious practices on papyrus. Well, that's singular. The plural is papyri, but that's harder to pronounce. Anyway, this recording, of course, helped to establish practices more solidly than oral tradition. These ritual texts were kept mainly in temple libraries. The temples themselves are also inscribed in hieroglyphics with such text, but unlike the papyri, these inscriptions were probably not instructions, but were meant to symbolically perpetuate the rituals. They believed this to be true, that the pictures would continue the practice, even if the people stopped. Understand? Yeah, it's a little bit outside of our modern practices. Anyway, the pictures of the practices placed on the temple walls could substitute for the actual rituals even if the people stopped the actual practices. So-called magical text also described rituals, but these rituals were part of the spells used for specific goals in the everyday lives of the people when they tried to manipulate their gods. It seems that these magical spells also originated in the temples. The Egyptians produced many prayers and hymns, mostly written in the form of poetry. Hymns and prayers follow a similar structure and are differentiated primarily by the specific purpose they serve. Hymns were written to praise particular deities. Like ritual texts, they were written both on papyri and temple walls, and they were probably recited as part of the rituals they accompanied in temple inscriptions. Most are structured according to a typical set literary formula designed to expound on the nature, aspects, and mythological functions of a given deity. They tend to speak more clearly about fundamental theology than other Egyptian religious writings and became particularly important in the New Kingdom. This time seems to have been a period of active theological discussion. Now, prayers followed the same general pattern as hymns, but addressed the relevant God in a more personal way asking for blessings, help, or forgiveness for wrongdoing. Such prayers were infrequent prior to the New Kingdom, indicating that in earlier periods such direct personal interaction with a deity was probably not believed possible, or maybe was less likely to be expressed in writing. These prayers are known mostly from inscriptions on statues and stele left in sacred sites as offerings. Egyptian temples existed from the beginning of their civilization and have been found in most of their villages and towns. These included both mortuary temples to serve the spirits of deceased pharaohs and temples dedicated to patron gods. But there is not a clear line between the two, and this is especially confounding since the pantheon and deceased pharaohs were so intertwined. And, unlike what you may expect, the temples were not intended for the general populace, and the lowly commoners had a complicated collection of religious practices of their own. The government-run temples served as actual houses for the gods, in which pictures and statues served as their likenesses 
and were cared for and provided with offerings. This was believed to be necessary to sustain the gods so that they could in turn maintain the universe itself. Since the maintenance of the universe was absolutely necessary, the temples were central to Egyptian society, and vast supplies, money, and resources were devoted to their upkeep. Remember last week when I covered the Rosetta Stone and how it detailed a donation from Ptolemy to the temple? This was one such example. The ruling pharaoh would frequently expand the temple as part of their obligation to honor the gods, so that many temples grew to be huge in size. But, with many gods, not all gods received the same level of attention. Some were hardly worshipped, with many only receiving small amounts of individual worship and no temple to speak of. The oldest Egyptian temples were small, temporary structures, and as time wore on, they became larger, more elaborate, and more permanent. To achieve this permanence, they tended to be built from stone. The layout was standardized during the New Kingdom. In the standard plan, the temple was built along a central ritual hallway that led through a series of courts to the sanctuary, which held a statue of the temple's god. Access to the most sacred part of the temple was limited to the pharaoh and the highest-ranking priest. The journey from the temple entrance to the sanctuary was meant to symbolize the journey from the human world to the divine realm. This belief was further highlighted by the symbolism built into the temple architecture. The temple was also surrounded by a protective wall. The area between the wall and the temple held many lesser buildings, including workshops and storage areas to supply the temple's needs. It also held the library where the temple's sacred writings and other records were kept. The library served as a center of learning on a multitude of subjects. One of the many duties of the pharaoh was to carry out the temple rituals, since he was the human intermediary between people and the gods. But he was a busy man, so he tended to delegate these duties to the priest. Up through the Middle Kingdom, being a priest was not a job unto itself. Instead, many government officials would alternate over the length of months between the priesthood and their governmental duties. This dual role went away during the New Kingdom when the priesthood became a separate job, but many of the lowest levels of this job only worked part-time. And it was a governmental job, even for the part-timers. They were all appointed to their positions by the pharaoh. Over time, the priesthood, owing mostly to the donations from the lowest person in society all the way up to the pharaoh, gathered much wealth. After all, the donations weren't sent to the sun god or any other deity, and the temples were paid for by the government, so the donations went straight to the priest. As their wealth grew, so did their power, up to the point of being nearly equal with the pharaoh. During the third intermediary period, so between 1070 and 664 BC, the high priest of Amun at Karnak became the operative rulers of Upper Egypt. But the priests weren't the only people working in the temples. There were also musicians and chanters who performed during temple ceremonies. Then there were non-ceremonial roles, such as artisans and general laborers, who helped supply the temple's needs. And, 
Given that the temples tended to be attached to large agricultural estates, there were farmers. And with the farmers, the temple is seen not just as a religious center, but also as an industry, sometimes employing thousands, and not only supplying its own needs, but generating income. So, donations, government support, and income-generating activity, all from the religious sector. All of this led to an increasing power base. And that's probably as good of a place as any to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll wrap up the religion of the ancient Egyptians. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. They have really been coming in and are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe. You'll get the episodes as soon as they are released and you won't miss any. Thanks for listening and have a great week.